it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Globe Inn is a monthly subscription box of fair trade goods from all across the world. Each artisan box is a curated and themed collection of handmade items for the home. They can include everything from ceramic and wooden jewellery chests from India and pedicure exfoliators from Nepal to salt from the Philippines, cocoa from Ghana and other food items. It is one of the most customizable subscription boxes out there. Each month, Globe Inn has four or five brand new box themes and you can choose one of these as your monthly selection. The box includes a booklet which tells you the powerful stories of the artisans who created the products. If you aren't interested in one of their monthly boxes, you can select any of their previous bestsellers. Additionally, if you'd rather shop for the items yourself, you can select Redeem and put your box credits towards individual fair trade goods that are on sale in the monthly add-on sale. Globe Inn is an amazing subscription box, not only because of their products, but because they are a verified member of the Fair Trade Federation, which means that they pay their artisans a reliable wage. So click the link to Globe Inn in my show notes and enter promo code MORBIDOLOGY for $20 off your first order. Welcome to Morbidology, the podcast. I'm your host, Emily G. Thompson, author of Unsolved Child Murders, Cults Uncovered, and co-author of Unsolved Murders, True Crime Cases Uncovered. Jasper is a small timber town around 100 miles northeast of Houston, Texas. It's a quaint area that holds an annual butterfly festival the 1st of October every year. However, in June of 1998, Jasper was rocked by a brutal hate crime that still reverberates across the nation today. As a motorist was arriving at the African-American church on Huff Creek Road on the 8th of June 1998, they were met by a grisly scene. Dumped in front of the church beside the African-American cemetery was the mutilated torso of an African-American man, and a three-mile bloody trail 
revealed one of the world's most disturbing murders. James Byrd Jr. was a divorced father of three and a former salesman known for his friendly demeanour and positive outlook on life. If there was ever a party in the town, James would be front and centre, and if there wasn't a party, James would create one. Quite often, he could be seen mowing the lawn while dancing and singing. Quote, he was the funniest person you'd ever want to meet, end quote, recollected Flora Barty, a neighbour of James's parents. Quote, Everyone around here knew him. There was no ingrained hatred or anything like that, end quote, recollected James's sister, Clara Taylor. James was musically talented and loved to sing as well as play the piano and trumpet. His favourite song was the hymn, Walk With Me Lord, and some of his friends joked that he could sing Al Green better than Al Green. No song that he loves is Al Green and Pepper Rain. He loves all that kind of song. When he hears music, he just goes off. But the funny thing about it, he walked down the road. He didn't bother nobody. Or had a little hat and tipped to the side. And he would just kick his foot and just be happy. Every time I see him, he happy. He came from a good background for his parents, sisters, and brothers. Most of them made a good career out of their lives. And, uh... His mother and father was always in the church and they raised their children to go the right way, which we all might choose to go another way when we get a little age and choose to leave home or whatever, but they weren't going to have it around there. In 1990, James was sentenced to six years in prison for theft and violating parole. Following his release in 1996, he desperately tried to turn his life around. He got himself an apartment at the Pineview Public Housing Project and life truly appeared to be on the upswing. Due to a physical arm injury that James had sustained several years beforehand and a seizure disorder, he was unable to work and was living on disability checks. For extra cash, James would mow lawns around the town. He walked everywhere he needed to go or wanted to go because he couldn't afford a car. That didn't bother James though. Jasper was a small town and practically everything was in walking distance. James was so well-known around the town as well that quite often, if somebody saw him walking somewhere, they would offer him a ride. He loved music. He came to church with his parents. and He was brought up in the community and people, everybody loved him. He was a, a person that was uh, respected in this community. Despite whatever issues James may have had in the past, he was a caring and reliable man. He had taken to caring for his elderly neighbour, Thomas, and would come over to his porch every morning with a friendly word, some breakfast or a box of dominoes. On Sunday, James would take Thomas to church with him. He was well-loved and well-known in the community and was the father of three adult children that had all come from a previous marriage. His 27-year-old daughter, Renee Mullins, lived in Hawaii. His 20-year-old son, Ross Bird, was in the Army Station at Fort Benning, Georgia, and his youngest child, 16-year-old Jamie, lived with her mother in Lufkin, around 50 miles away. James was an exceptionally proud father and loved the fact that with his new apartment, they could come and stay. And James Bird, he was just an ordinary guy. And, you know, 
he, he did his thing. He did a little drinking and whatever. But he, he didn't bother nobody. And the most thing that I feel about it, regardless to what he did, his life was violated. And he always said that he was going to put Jasper on the map. That was one of his main words. But nowhere in his dream did he fail that he would put Jasper on the map the way Jasper got on the map concerning James Bird. On the 7th of June, 1998, James attended his niece's bridal shower at his parents' home in Jasper. He had been counting down the days until the bridal shower because Renee would be there with her one-year-old daughter, having travelled from Hawaii. Before leaving that night, he gave his older sister, Stella Brumley, a big hug and she reminded him to get ready for Father's Day. It was family tradition that all eight of the siblings would gather for Sunday service at their parents' church. Quote, I got my suit in the cleaners, I'm going to be ready, end quote, he reassured his sister. As James walked down the dirt road, three men pulled up alongside him in their truck. They were 31-year-old Lawrence Russell Brewer from Sulphur Springs, 23-year-old Sean Allen Berry from Jasper, and 23-year-old John William King, also from Jasper. All three men had served time in prison, and two of the men had ties to the Ku Klux Klan or the Aryan Brotherhood. The Aryan Brotherhood got its start on the West Coast in the 1960s. It boasts of members throughout prison in the United States and exhibits an intense hatred of African American and Jews. They considered prison ripe recruiting grounds for the organization. The Aryan Brotherhood had ties to the Aryan Nation, an Idaho-based paramilitary organization that advocates racial violence and white supremacy. Lawrence and John both had tattoos which displayed their white supremacist beliefs. Next, we will hear from District Attorney James Gray describing their tattoos. Bill King was absorbed with these uh, terrorist-type organizations that exist throughout our country. You get a general idea of what he has on his body, where you have his gang affiliation, Confederate Knights of America, his Nazi affiliation with the uh, Lightning Boats, Aryan Pride. One here is a little uh, tattoo of a hanging black man that's blown up next to a Klansman in a robe holding his hat and a burning cross. Did the same thing on uh, Brewer. But you got that triangular Klan affiliation, Confederate Knights of America, there's his patch, Klan, Burning Cross, Confederate flag. And Sean Berry is a little bit harder to understand. By comparison, you can see that Sean Berry didn't have anything like the other guys in terms of tattoos. He's got this deal over here that says Brotherhood. We couldn't connect it with any type of organization. Sean and John had known each other since attending Jasper High School and were arrested together in 1992 after breaking into a building in Jasper where electronic games equipment was stored. They both received a 10-year sentence, but after a shock probation boot camp in January of 1993, Sean was released from prison. And then in January of 1994, John was given a shock probation boot camp and released. The following year, however, John was back in prison for violating his parole. He was released two years later and apparently his family had urged him not to hang around with Sean. But according to a relative, 
John was easily influenced and told his family that Sean had changed. Lawrence had been in and out of prison on burglary and drug possession charges since 1987. It was here that Lawrence met John. In September of 1993, Lawrence's parole on a cocaine conviction was revoked and he was released from prison in September of 1997. Then in May of 1998, Lawrence showed up in Jasper and he and Sean moved into John's apartment in West Jasper. The walls inside the apartment were decorated with white supremacy posters. The apartment had been rented out to John and his pregnant girlfriend back in March, but the account manager was in the process of having them evicted because they were too loud and the other two men had moved into the apartment, which was supposed to be occupied by only two people. The night that this happened, they were actually out looking for girls, drinking beer and looking for girls. I don't think they planned to do anything that night. It just so happened that the victim, James Bird, was alone on a dark street, fairly dark, uh, drunk, vulnerable, uh, pretty easy target, and they picked him up. Upon seeing James walking down the road, the three men decided they would pick him up. James jumped into the truck bed and the men first of all drove to a convenience store east of Jasper. There are a number of different versions of events as to what happened next in regards to who was driving the vehicle and who decided James's fate. What is known, however, is that the men drove James up to a small clearing in the woods on Huff Creek Road. Here, James was dragged from the truck and severely beaten urinated on and defecated on. During the beating, John reportedly said, quote, we're starting the Turner Diaries early, end quote. The Turner Diaries was written in 1978 by William Pierce, the head of the National Alliance, one of the largest and most organized neo-Nazi groups within the United States. It's kind of like a Bible for right-wing extremists and calls for the violent overthrow of the federal government as well as the systematic killing of Jews and people of colour. Following the brutal beating, James was spray-painted on the face and then chained by his ankles to the pickup truck, a symbolic remnant of slavery. The men then drove the truck, dragging James behind it. The three men didn't stop driving as James's flesh ripped from his body as they weaved from one side of the road to the other. They didn't stop after they came around a sharp turn and James's body bounced into a ditch at the side of the road, hitting the ragged end of a concrete culvert just below his arm. They didn't stop when the impact ripped James's arm, shoulder, neck and head from the rest of his body. They continued to drive for a further mile with just half of James's body. They finally stopped the truck after three miles when they ran out of paved road. After investigators arrived at the church where James's mutilated body was found, they set up the task of identifying him and retrieving the rest of his body. It wouldn't be long until his other remains were discovered. His head, neck and right arm were recovered along the road leading up to the church. There were smears of blood running along the road as well as James's dentures and pieces of flesh that had ripped from his body here and there. Along the bloody trail, investigators found James's tennis shoes, shirt, wallet and keys. The trail of James's life coming to a cruel end was clear. 
His blood was smeared along more than two miles of the country road. James was quickly identified via fingerprints. His body had been so mangled that there was no way that identification could have been done by sight. However, since James had a criminal record, his fingerprints were on file. Initially, investigators had speculated and probably hoped that James was unconscious as he was being dragged from the truck. However, his autopsy would show that he was very much alive and very much conscious. James had attempted to support himself on his elbows and forearms so that his head wouldn't hit the pavement. The very next day, all three men were arrested. However, they initially weren't arrested in connection with James's murder. They were picked up for possession of stolen property. Officers had been investigating the break-in of a local restaurant when they caught the three men with large quantities of frozen meat. Investigators soon began to suspect them in relation to James's murder after a wrench bearing Sean's name was discovered near James's body and then inside Sean's truck they discovered similar tools. On the underside of the truck, investigators found blood spatter and a witness would inform police that they had seen James riding in the back of Sean's truck. Additionally, investigators found a lighter with a Ku Klux Klan symbol emblazoned on the front, alongside John's prison nickname, Possum. Following the arrests, Sheriff Billy Roll stated, quote, All evidence shows it will be racially motivated, end quote. However, he rejected the notion that racist groups such as the KKK and the Aryan Nation have members in the area. Quote, we have no Aryan Nation or KKK in Jasper County, end quote. FBI officials were called in to assist in the investigation and determine whether federal charges of conspiracy to deprive constitutional rights could be filed against the defendants. Such charges are often only filed in racially motivated cases. The following day, state murder charges were filed against Lawrence, Sean and John. As they were led from court to the jail van, one of them attempted to conceal their faces. One woman in the crowd shouted, quote, Hold your head up, you coward. You weren't ashamed when you did it, end quote. Next, we will hear from James's mother, Stella Bird, and his daughter, Renee Mullins. I'm very hurt. Disappointed to think anybody could do anything that horrible to a person without a cause. I feel angry, but I don't feel any hate. I am angry at him, but uh, I, I don't hate him. Right before my father's murder, I just seen him the day before. We all was at a, a family gathering. Uh, my cousins, uh, his niece brought a shower and um, he was playing my little girl, Taylor. It was only a grandchild. And um, <clears throat> it's like I feel robbed, like somebody just snatched him away from the whole family, you know. Um, I don't blame any one particular race for what happened to my father. I blame three people that done it. And underneath my smile and my face, I'm very deeply hurt and affected and but I'm not out to get uh, sympathy from anyone. I just want people to be aware that this is a wake-up call for America, and it could have been me, it could have been you, it could have been Miss Cat or anybody. It's weird because I wouldn't have any kind of remorse or any kind of 
jitters or anything seeing them tortured the way my father was, and I never felt like that before. As news of the brutal murder hit headlines, a number of American flags in Jasper were flew at half-staff. A portable advertising sign at a self-service car wash on US-96 read, quote, Jasper, Texas, mourning, hurting, crying, America, pray for us, end quote. The brutal murder truly grabbed the nation's conscience. It was a horrific example of just how much hatred some people can be filled with. In 1996, the U.S. Justice Department had reported 5,396 racial hate crimes, and this was one more that showed that racial unrest was seething just below the quiet surface. While Texas is on the periphery of Old South, it still shared the region's grim history of racially motivated hate crimes. Texas's violent history dated back to the late 19th century, when it was among the South's most lynch-prone states. At least 355 people, most of whom were black, died because of mob violence between 1889 and 1918. Quote, I think this is a stark reminder of what can happen in this country. Education is not the sole answer, but it's one of the cornerstones of correcting it, end quote, said Joe Roy head of the Intelligence Project of the Southern Poverty Law Center in Montgomery, Alabama. We will work not only to make sure that the federal laws we have on the books will be triggered so that we can get the kind of designation that is necessary to ensure that there is swift and tough justice. The residents of Jasper were shaken by the murder. Jasper was a quiet town where the weekly newspaper, the Jasper Newsboy, rarely reported anything more violent than a traffic accident on US Highway 96. In Jasper, people of all races are welcome and there's no kind of segregation in the sense that African Americans live in a certain part of the town while whites live in another part. In 1998, 45% of the residents were black and 55% were white while in the surrounding county, only 20% were black. Mayor R.C. Horn, who is African-American, stated that the murder did not reflect the town. Quote, We won't show any animosity here. This town has been about loving each other. If it was different, I wouldn't be mayor, end quote, he said. Next, we will hear from Walter Diggles, county official. During the beginning of this tragic murder, county judge and the mayor asked me to help facilitate because it was a crisis situation. I've been able to, to deal with the bankers and the uh, uh, professional officials that are white on the golf course and at the country club or, or in the black church or in the uh, community center uh, in the boys and girls clubs. I think Jasper has, because of the sheer facts of the black leadership, has made more progress than any other community of this size in the country. 45% black population, uh, when you look at the leadership position in the community, you see uh, African-American doctor practicing in the hospital who has a patient load as large as any in the community, both black and white. You see the only hospital in this community that uh, is probably one of the largest uh, payrolls in this community uh, being run by an African-American. Uh, there's no fluke that the mayor won, uh, beat uh, against two whites, actually three whites and one black. He won majority 
without a runoff. Uh, you've got two African Americans on that council that really governs this city. And that's why when you, you when you take a microscope and look at this community and say, you know, what's in this community? Well, how can it, how could uh, in the name of God could somebody in this community in 1998 commit a crime uh, uh, this bizarre? While the murder obviously wasn't representative of the town, it did reveal a sinister undercurrent beneath the surface. Quote, I think the fear of the unknown is what bothers them. What other residual is lying there? How deep does this river run? End quote. Questioned Herman Wright, an African-American man who moved to Jasper in 1977 to become a manager at a plywood plant. According to Rife Kimmler, a lawyer who had represented Ku Klux Klan leaders in the past, said, quote, East Texas is more like the deep south than the rest of Texas in its social mores. There is a lot of quiet support for the Klan, but a lot of people are afraid to come out and publicly demonstrate because of social repercussions, end quote. James's sister, Mary Verrett, spoke with NBC Today and said, quote, I would hate to label Jasper County as a whole as being a racist town. I think that's unfair to so many good people who live here, who are just kind and generous like everywhere else, end quote. In the aftermath of James's murder, the fence separating the African-American cemetery from the white cemetery was removed. Next, we will hear from Father Ron Fossage. There's several old fences up there separating family plots. But then I, when I walked out there one day, I realized it went the length of the cemetery that couldn't be a family. And, and, and so I asked someone, and they said, well, that's where the black people are buried. I was determined to bring that up to the spirituality committee to see if other people felt the way I did. And um, I, I talked to Reverend Kenneth Lyons, who I just greatly respect. I asked him if taking that fence down could be our first priority. Following the arrests, John's father, Ronald King, wrote an apology letter since his son, or the other two killers, had not shown a semblance of remorse for what they had done to James. It read, quote, My sympathy goes out to the Bird family. There is no reason for a person to take the life of another, and to take it in such a manner is beyond any kind of reasoning. It hurts me deeply to know that a boy I raised, and considered to be the most loved boy I knew, could find it in himself to take a life. This deed cannot be undone, but I hope we can all find it in our hearts to go forward in peace and with love for all. Let us find in our hearts love for our fellow man. Hate can only destroy. Again, I want to say I'm sorry, end quote. On the 13th of June, hundreds of people packed into the new Bethel Baptist Church, around a block from the home where James grew up, to pay their final respects to him. A silver casket with a framed photograph of James sat at the front of the church, surrounded with floor arrangements. James's sister, Clara Taylor, asked for no hate towards the three men who had been charged with James's murder. Quote, We don't use the word hate here. We just want justice done, end quote, she said. During the funeral, Reverend Jesse Jackson called for the murder of James to become a moral magnet to bring black people and white people together to stop racism and embrace acceptance. James was subsequently buried in Jasper City Cemetery. It goes without saying that such deep hatred doesn't develop overnight, and by this point, very little was known about the three suspects or their ties to white supremacy. 
Many looked towards the prison system and suggested that the hatred might have been nurtured behind bars. In the violent closed world that is prison, experts say that identifying with a group can mean the difference between a brutalized and lonely existence and a more bearable time. Alliances in prison can sometimes be forced along lines of ethnicity and race, and Deep East Texas has long carried a reputation for breeding members of the Ku Klux Klan. A series of letters from John while in prison were soon released. The letters had been sent to one of John's friends back home, and in the letters he proclaimed his hatred for people of colour and his allegiance to the Aryan Brotherhood. John had sent another letter to his 17-year-old girlfriend, Kylie Greeny, and her parents were so disturbed by the letter that they called the prison and asked them to make John stop sending letters. The letters didn't stop, however, and upon John's release, he and Kylie would get an apartment together and she would soon fall pregnant. Furthermore, Lawrence and John had both been monitored for possible affiliation with the Ku Klux Klan and the Confederate Knights of America while they were imprisoned at the Beto Unit in Tennessee Colony. During his incarceration, John had also been disciplined for his involvement in a 1995 racial disturbance between whites and Hispanics at the prison. Disturbingly, just a week after James was murdered, it was announced that the Ku Klux Klan would be staging a white pride rally in Jasper. Despite the announcement, City Council member Nancy Nicholson said she was confident that the town would boycott the rally and hopefully not attend. Quote, The mayor will make a statement and our people will ignore it as much as possible because all of this is a publicity stunt. They all want to cash in on the publicity, end quote, she said. The rally was called as a protest to the media reports of possible links between the Klan and the three suspects. Following the announcement, the Black Panther Party said they would be embarking on Jasper at the same time to counteract the KKK rally and protect the citizens of Jasper. The Ku Klux Klan men staged a rally in front of the county courthouse. About 18 Klansmen participated in what was allocated as a peaceful rally to protest the killing of James Byrd Jr. You sold a guy because your ass is mine. You show you how, how, how you big as a country. Me why the sun don't shine. Before the KKK rally began, members of the new Black Panther Party walked through the streets of Jasper, chanting and warning of violence if there were problems for blacks. We must have our God. And our guns, and pray that God will bless us to shoot straight when it's time to shoot straight. No, we did not distribute the weapons. No, we did not. But we will be offering self-defense classes to the black community here in Jasper for the next five weeks. On the 27th of June, the Ku Klux Klan marched through Jasper wearing their white hoods and carrying Confederate flags. The Black Panther Party showed up to protect the citizens, and police kept the two sides apart and only made one arrest. Quote, Make no mistake about it, this is Klan country, end quote, said Klan leader Rick Anderson. The demonstration horrified the vast majority of Jasper, who said that the Ku Klux Klan had no right to be in their town. Quote, let this horrendous violation of the sanctity of life not be a spark that ignites more hatred and retribution. Rather, let this be a wake-up call for America, for all Americans, end quote, said James's family. As a community, we're all coming together. I mean, no one wants any of this. We don't want any of this, you know. And I think this town will overcome this. I really do. Because we're a very close-knit family. I mean, I mean, community. We really are. I mean, 
There's whites, blacks, on, on all down this little street here. Nobody bothers anybody. We all get along. We get out in the yard. We talk, you know. In early July, Sean, Lawrence, and John were indicted on capital murder charges. Around the same time that the charges were filed, James's daughter, Frances Mullins, urged Congress to strengthen federal laws against hate crime and endorsed the Hate Crimes Prevention Act of 1998. This was a bill that gave federal prosecutors greater power to intervene in hate crime cases. It would also give them new authority to prosecute criminals who target their victims out of hatred for their gender, disability or sexual orientation. At the time, the current law defined hate crimes as motivated by bigotry against the victim's race, ethnic origin or religion. Quote, The man who murdered my father had a choice that morning, and they chose violence. Therefore, the laws of the land should punish them. I'm here today to prevent other acts of violence of this nature from occurring in America. I think there should be a federal jurisdiction over crimes so hateful. It's a pity to die because of your race, handicap, or sexual orientation, end quote, she said. The three men had been charged under Texas law, but legislation in Congress would make it easier for federal prosecutors to take over. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Before we get on with the episode, I'd like to take a second to tell you about an awesome true crime podcast. True Crime Excess is a podcast that allows you to follow the trail of a serial killer. The podcast follows a group of investigators who analyze the FBI files, missing person cases, and the interviews of Israel Keys, a serial killer who ended his life before revealing the true extent of his crimes. True Crime Excess truly puts the listener into the middle of the investigation and they piece together the case and try to identify his victims. The investigators make some big cracks in the case and even reveal where the victims are buried. So head on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Himalaya or wherever else you're listening and search for True Crime Excess and subscribe today. Is there something interfering with your happiness or are you struggling mentally? If so, don't suffer in silence. BetterHelp Online Counseling is there to help you. They are an online professional counseling service with 3,000 licensed therapists available to anybody, no matter where you're from. Sometimes admitting that you need help can be daunting, but with BetterHelp, you can get help at your own time and at your own pace. 
They have professionals specializing in a variety of fields, from depression and anxiety to family conflicts and sleeping issues. Rest assured that whatever you share is completely confidential and you can contact them via text, chat, phone and video. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash morbidology. Join over 8,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash morbidology. Following the arrests, Sean had confessed to the murder and gave a play-by-play of what had happened. However, he diminished his role in the murder and claimed that he wasn't physically involved and instead placed the blame solely on Lawrence and John. According to Sean, he had ran away when Lawrence and John started beating James and watched on from a distance. While none of the suspects had yet entered a plea, Sean's lawyer said that Sean would be pleading not guilty. Shortly thereafter, however, it would be revealed that James's blood had been found on all three men's shoes. And quickly enough, Sean recanted his statement and instead admitted that he had been standing nearby as James was beaten and said that at one point, James fell on him while struggling to stand up. Quote, his little bubble is slowly bursting, end quote, said Sheriff Billy Rolls. Initially, authorities had been considered cutting Sean a deal. However, this new forensic evidence led them instead to consider seeking the death penalty against him as well as against Lawrence and John. Sure enough, in early October, prosecutors announced that there was no plea deal for Sean, and instead, he would be tried on capital murder charges alongside Lawrence and John. James's murder had reverberated in the community and remained at the forefront of racial tensions in society. Shortly thereafter, James's daughter, Renee Mullins, spoke before a crowd that had gathered for a National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People panel discussion called Bridging the Racial Gap. During her talk, Renee urged people of different races to try and get to know each other as friends. Quote, Do not be afraid of the unknown. Do not hate your neighbour because he was not born the same colour you were or because he may not have the same moral standards you have. End quote. Days later, the Ku Klux Klan held another rally in Jasper. Quote, we stand for what is right and God stands with us, end quote, said Doc James, Grand Dragon of the American Knights of the Ku Klux Klan of Arkansas. Around 75 Jasper locals showed up and taunted the Klan. According to the Klan, they were there to rally for white rights, but it was evident that they were there to taunt Jasper and to make a mockery out of James. Out of all of the places they could have chosen to hold their rally, they chose the scene where an African-American man was lynched by white supremacists. In November, John released a statement to the Dallas Morning News in which he pointed the finger towards Sean. He claimed that Sean's, quote, irate temper, abusive behaviour and steroid use, end quote, was what had caused the murder. He also claimed that the murder wasn't racially motivated, but instead said that James had drug ties to Sean. John's defence lawyer said that the statement was a mistake, and soon enough, investigators said that there was no evidence to support the claims, including the claim that James was somehow involved in drugs. John had even concluded his statement with, quote, I, John W. King, 
remains white and proud, end quote. Investigators quickly denounced the letter as a transparent attempt to blame somebody else. James's mother, Stella Bird, responded to John's allegations, stating, quote, It doesn't bother me because I know the truth. Those boys belong to a gang. They had tattoos all over them and they were out there hunting anybody down that was black, end quote. All three suspects pleaded not guilty and prosecutors announced that the three men would be facing trial separately. As the new year rung in, John's two court-appointed lawyers asked to be withdrawn from the case, telling the judge that John was not cooperating with them and had even refused to speak to them. John's trial was scheduled for just two weeks away and according to defence attorney Sonny Cribbs, he didn't expect the judge to allow him to withdraw but said he felt as though he needed to file the motion because of John's uncooperative behaviour. John's father, Ronald King, subsequently said he believed that his son was acting out because he didn't want to be the first to go on trial. Quote, I just don't understand him. It ain't my boy doing this, end quote, he said. Shortly after the motion was filed, John was placed under a high-security watch after threatening jail officers with a six-inch shank that he had tipped with broken glass. The judge rejected the defence attorney's request to be removed from the case. John King's trial began on the 16th of February, 1999. Good morning, this is Mike Lott for KJAS Radio News, reporting live from the Jasper County Courthouse. The stage is set, and 24-year-old William King will go on trial for the June dragging death of James Bird Jr. King is the first of three men to be tried in connection with a murder that shocked East Texas and the world. Continuing in the news at this hour, all uh, 15 members of the uh, Byrd family are in uh, the courtroom today. Uh, Ronald King, the father of the defendant, um, Bill King, or William King, uh, continues to be in the courthouse as well. Now District Attorney Guy James Gray is coming to the podium. I, I think we have three guys that committed this crime, not just one. How many black jurors are there? All the judge permitted us to say that was that it was not an all-white jury. The jury of 12 had only one African-American. During opening statements, prosecutor Guy James Gray said that John's tattoos and the books, writings and posters found inside his apartment showed that he was an angry racist who had wanted to form his own personal hate group in Jasper. According to prosecutor Gray, John felt as though he, quote, needed to do something dramatic in order to gain, in their warped world, respect for his newly formed gang, end quote. John's defence attorney, Sonny Cripps, made no opening statement and instead reserved the option to give one later on in trial. He did say, however, that, quote, the evidence, it appears overwhelming, but you've got to prove the accused has done the offence, end quote. One of the first witnesses to testify was Sheriff Billy Rolls. He described how almost as soon as they saw the crime scene, they knew that this wasn't a hit and run and instead was a hate crime. He described the lighter with the Ku Klux Klan symbol as well as John's prison nickname. Quote, I'm a brand new sheriff and I didn't even know the definition of a hate crime, but I knew somebody was murdered because he was black, end quote, he said. Michelle Chapman also testified. She told the jury that during a two-year period, while John was in prison, he had sent her 19 letters, many of which were filled with racist venom. Quote, white is right, end quote, proclaimed John in one of the letters. 
In another letter, John said white women who dated people of colour were traitors and should be lynched alongside them. He also wrote a code of ethics, bylaws and recruitment letters and said he had started a racial hatred group called the Texas Rebel Soldiers, which he said was a branch of the Knights of America, a white supremacy group. The letters were a blend of racist rhetoric from traditional Klan groups and newer neo-Nazi organisations. William Hoover, a convicted robber, testified that James discussed abducting an African-American man and killing him as part of an initiation rite for his racist gang. Quote, To help new recruits get initiated, take somebody out and kill them. You have to spill blood to get in and give blood to get out, I guess. End quote, he said. This conversation came before James's murder, and according to William... John boasted that he was going to abduct an African-American man after his release, quote, put him in the trunk of a car, take him out to the woods and kill him, end quote. The prosecution said that the murder may have been a blood initiation, either for James or for Sean, to become a Confederate Knights member, which Lawrence was already a member of. Lewis Berry, Sean's brother, also testified. He told the jury that John was an out-and-out racist. Just the day before the murder, John had refused to attend a barbecue with friends in nearby Burksville because the man hosting the barbecue was African-American. In more testimony, it was revealed that John had wrote a letter from jail to Lawrence in which he expressed his pride in the murder. Quote, Regardless of the outcome of this, we have made history. End quote. Read part of the letter. Dr. Thomas Brown, who had conducted James's autopsy, described how James had tried in vain to save himself as he was dragged from the back of the truck. Quote, It was my opinion Mr. Bird was alive up to the point he hit the culvert. He was alive when the head, shoulder and right arm were separated, end quote. He testified. He also described how James's flesh had been torn away from his body, exposing many of his limbs to the bone. His testimony was important because in order to seek the death penalty, prosecutors must show that James's murder also occurred in conjunction with another crime. In this case, it would be kidnapping. One of the centerpieces of the trial was the DNA evidence. James's blood had been discovered on John's shoes and John's DNA was found on a cigarette butt and beer bottles at the crime scene. In fact, one cigarette butt at the crime scene contained both James's and John's DNA. District Attorney Gray said that this could have shown that James was offered a ceremonial last smoke that a condemned man was traditionally given before execution. James's blood was also found on a shirt and jeans inside John's apartment and on the tires of the truck and underside of the truck. Another 13 pieces of evidence contained James's blood, including all three men's shoes. The defence called three witnesses, including a friend who said that John had never attempted to recruit him into a racist gang, and a former job supervisor who said that John was a good worker. John didn't testify on his own behalf. In closing arguments, prosecutor Pat Hardy outlined all of the evidence against John and likened the three suspects to, quote, three robed riders coming straight out of hell, end quote. In his closing arguments, defence attorney Brack Jones acknowledged that James had suffered, quote, a terrible, brutal, horrendous death, end quote, but questioned whether he was kidnapped. 
The evidence against John was pretty overwhelming and he was found guilty of capital murder after just two hours of deliberation. It was a welcome affirmation of the American justice system. As he was convicted of the murder, John grinned from ear to ear. Now it was time for the jury to either sentence John to life in prison or sentence him to death. During the sentencing phase, prosecutor Pat Hardy suggested that by sentencing John to life as opposed to death was dangerous because his views were so ingrained that he would always be a racist. Quote, By giving Mr. King a life sentence, you're giving him at least 40 years to catch a black guard, a black nurse, a black doctor, a Jewish guard, a Jewish nurse, a Jewish doctor, or anybody else. You're giving him a chance to catch anybody who doesn't believe in his racist views, end quote. In a bid to save his son's life, Ronald King took to the stand. Ronald described how he and his wife had adopted John when he was just a few months old. Ronald was a sad picture. He was in a wheelchair and clutched an oxygen tube to ease his emphysema. Many members in the courtroom were touched by his evident heartache. Quote, Anything is better than losing him. We've invested a lot of love into that boy. I hate to think we're going to lose him, end quote, he said. The jury ultimately decided that John should die by lethal injection for his crime. With his fate sealed, John's unflinching demeanour throughout his trial slipped for an instant and revealed that flash of hatred that drove him to murder. When asked if he had anything to say to James's family, John hissed and cursed at them. To many in Jasper, the verdict welcomed the message that such conduct was intolerable and would be dealt with swiftly and appropriately. It also sent a stronger message to the rest of the nation that racism is not the predominant dogma in America. John was the first white man to receive a death sentence for killing a black person since Texas resumed the death penalty in the mid-1970s. Nationally, eight white people had been executed for killing a black person since the resumption of the death penalty, while 124 black people had been executed for killing a white person. Outside of court, a number of locals had gathered to celebrate the verdict. The sentencing that came in, the verdict, we're very pleased with it. It's the first time in like 400 years that a white man has ever been sentenced to death for killing a black man. We are very proud. We've always been down, so we look like things are finally looking up for the black community. And I'll tell anybody anywhere, I'm very proud today to be a resident of Jasper. In June of this year, we spoke to the world about a tragic uh, incident in Jasper County, and we told you that uh, we were going to seek justice in this particular case, and we're very proud of it district attorney. We're very proud of the law enforcement officials, and we're proud of the people that live in this community, and we're proud of you all who are coming and reporting exactly what we have in this particular community. Following the sentencing phase, District Attorney Guy James Gray announced that he wanted John to testify against Sean in his upcoming trial. Quote, it would indicate that he feels like his case is so weak that he has got to turn to somebody he has called the devil to prop up his case against Barry, end quote, said Sean's defence attorney, Joseph Hawthorne. The next to stand trial was Lawrence Brewer. 
His trial was moved from Jasper to Brazos County after both the defence and the prosecution acknowledged that heightened public awareness might make it difficult to find an impartial jury. The trial began on the 13th of September and consisted of an entirely white jury. During opening statements, District Attorney Gray said that Lawrence was proud of what he had done. Quote, he sees himself as a hero, a star, and he's really accomplished. It's really a kind of weird mindset, end quote. Lawrence's defense attorney, Doug Barlow, declined to make an opening statement. The evidence presented during Lawrence's trial was almost the same as the evidence presented during John's trial. It included bloodstained clothing, bloodstained shoes, and DNA on bottles and cigarettes. A jailhouse letter was also presented as evidence. In the letter, Lawrence bragged about the murder. Quote, I'm the hero of the day. Well, I did it, and no longer am I a virgin. It was a rush, and I'm still licking my lips for more, end quote. There was also a letter from Lawrence to John in which he wrote that they had a 70% chance of getting away with the murder. Quote, it's our word against Sean Berry's. Be for real, what's the worst they can possibly do? Pull prints off a 20-foot rusty-ass log chain, end quote. He also wrote that if they were convicted, they would die as martyrs. Another inmate, Jesus Moran, also testified that Lawrence had bragged about the murder while behind bars and said that he would do it all over again, but without the sloppiness that led to his arrest. Unlike John, Lawrence decided he would testify on his own behalf. Quote, I didn't mean to cause his death, end quote, he told the courtroom. Lawrence admitted that he was in the pickup truck with John and Sean, but claimed that Sean had slit James's throat and then chained him to the back of the truck. Lawrence said that James was riding in the truck with the three men when Sean stopped to take steroids. He said that John lit a cigarette and James walked around to the side of the truck and said, quote, let me smoke with you white boys, end quote. Next, Lawrence claimed that he saw glass break and saw John and James fighting. Quote, I don't know what to do. When I go round the corner of the truck, I tried to kick Bird in his side, end quote. Lawrence claimed he tried to break up the fight, but then saw Sean produce a knife and slit James's throat. Quote, everything stood still, just a moment. Bird slid down the side of the truck, end quote. This, of course, was easily disputed. There was no evidence that James's throat had been slit. Presumably, Lawrence knew nothing about autopsies and assumed that since James had been decapitated, a pathologist couldn't determine whether or not his throat had been slit beforehand. There was no evidence of any knife wounds and it had been determined that James was alive up until he slammed into the concrete culvert. Quote, Clearly, there is a pattern of deceit. He crafted his story to try to imply that James Bird was dead before they started dragging him. He just admitted enough to comply with the facts and just staying short of the death penalty, end quote, said District Attorney Gray. After just four hours of deliberation, Lawrence Brewer was also found guilty of capital murder. During the sentencing phase, his family pleaded for his life, quote, I know what you have found him guilty of. It's terrible. To take his life is more than this family is going to bear. This family has been torn apart, as I'm sure the Bird family has, end quote, said Lawrence's father, Lawrence Brewer Sr. 
The jury ultimately decided that Lawrence should die for his crime and sentenced him to death. Sean Barry's trial was next, and he requested to be tried in his hometown of Jasper. Next, we will hear from Sean's brother, Lewis. I waited a long time for the trial to start. Over the past year and a half, I've been to visitation. I can't count how many times. I haven't been allowed in the courtroom. In the past two trials, I've had to, to be there, but I wasn't allowed in. So uh, I'm kind of hoping that with this being my brother on the, you know, on trial that they'll let me in. But at the same time, I'm scared to death because there's the possibility that it's not going to turn out the way I want it. It's not the possibility that it's not going to turn out the way my family or my friends, Sean's friends, family, the people that just know Sean and were around him, you know, in and out from time to time or whatever, have enough information about Sean to know that he's not like that. And then you have the people that he worked with that were with him and had contact with him day in and day out, black, white, Hispanic, whatever they might be, and they say the same thing. I'm scared to death of the the last day of trial when they finally, when they give, you know, uh, their answer. When they make their decision and that judge opens that piece of paper and announces what it's going to be, it's scary as hell to me. His trial began on the 11th of November. During opening statements, Sean's defense attorney, Joseph Hawthorne, tried to distance him from his co-defendants stating that Sean had no racist tattoos and no connections to racist groups in prison. Prosecutors acknowledged this, but said that despite that, the evidence showed that he actively participated in the murder. Quote, The evidence will show you the choice to pick up James Bird was made by Sean Berry. He knew what the men were like that he was living with. He knew they wanted to kill a black man when he picked him up, end quote, said the prosecution. Like the earlier two trials, DNA evidence was presented in the form of James's blood on clothing and shoes. According to defence Hawthorne, however, the blood was on Sean because he was pushed into James while he tried to break up the fight. This contradicted Sean's earlier claim that he had ran away when the attack happened. Prosecutors showed excerpts of a television interview with Sean during which he contradicted the story he had given to police. Initially, Sean had told police, quote, I looked back, curious, and I saw the black male being dragged with a chain, end quote. However, in an interview with CBS, Sean told them that he never looked back to see James being dragged. Quote, Every time we confronted him with facts and evidence, he changed his story to fit the evidence, end quote, said former FBI agent Zachariah Shelton. It would also be revealed during trial that Sean had signed seven different statements as to what had happened, all of which contradicted the other. I I didn't say anything. Mr. Bird wasn't where I could see him. I mean, I wasn't staring at him. I I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what to think. Um, I never saw him chain him up. I didn't. I don't know how it was chained or where it was chained. Um, it didn't take them long. They Brewer walked around to my side. I was sitting on the door jam of the truck. Uh, Bill went to the driver's side, got in. Russell told me to scoot over. And I sat in the truck. And they started 
dragging him down that dirt road. Bill King was driving the truck, and Russell was by the door on the passenger side. Um, I actually couldn't hear anything. My truck's loud. It's real loud. I couldn't hear anything. Russell had looked back one time and started laughing and said, look, he's rolling around, he's bouncing around all over the place. They were having fun. They had him, they were acting like they were having just a good old time. John had also contended that it was John who drove the truck, dragging James behind it. But during the trial, footprint evidence would be presented that showed that it was actually Sean who had been driving the truck. The three men had taken James to a sandy area where the beating occurred and the footprints inside the truck had evidence of sand. The footprints on the driver's side of the car matched Sean's shoes that he was wearing that night and contained sand, which showed that he had been driving the truck after the beating. He's not afraid of these other guys. He's actually in control. It's his truck. He's there. I believe there's substantial evidence he was driving the truck. I know there was on the way out there, and I believe there is on the way back dragging him. He's got blood on him. Uh, I believe we've established under the law of parties that he was an active participant in the crime. <clears throat> Anything else? District Attorney Guy James Gray. Now we have Defense Attorney Lum Hawthorne and Sean Berry is uh, an attorney. Well, what they have here is a murder looking for a motive as far as Sean Berry is concerned. He's not a racist. He's not a hateful person. They're searching around trying to, to figure out how are they going to explain to this jury that he's guilty of this. They proved that Sean Berry was present, which is something that we've already admitted. We, we've told them all along that he was present. But mere presence alone doesn't make him guilty. They haven't proved that he participated. John testified on his own behalf. He claimed that he didn't take part in the attack, but said he was too afraid to interfere. Quote, I couldn't move. I've never been in a position where I couldn't move before. End quote, said Sean. I got in between Bill and him, and I told Bill, you know, stop. And, uh, he said this, you know, back off, the same thing can happen to a nigger lover. And um, it scared me. I mean, I, that's the only feeling I had. I mean, it scared me. I didn't know what was. I didn't know what was going on. I, I never saw anything like that. So I backed away. And they grabbed him, took him to the back of the truck. And uh, Mr. Bird was pretty drunk. He went up on the ground, and Bill was. Um, stomping him with the bottom of his foot. He was wearing sandals. He was stomping him with the bottom of his foot and Russell was kicking like straight outward like you'd kick a football or something. And uh, they were laughing, joking, acting like they were having a good time. He was down but he was on all fours. They started kicking on him and Russell got a can of spray paint out of the back and he sprayed him in the face. I didn't, Mr. Burr didn't say anything. <clears throat> he was still on all fours and Russell kicked him hard in the head somewhere. And, <clears throat> and that was the last time I saw him move. He described how he was so frozen in fear that he wet himself at the scene 
He also claimed that he had tried to break up the fight, but was told by John that a, quote, N-word lover, end quote, could meet the same fate as James. Following the murder, Sean claimed he helped wash blood off his truck and the logging chain because he was convinced that he was guilty of murder just for being there. During closing arguments, Assistant District Attorney Pat Hardy reminded the jury that Sean had changed his story numerous times. He said that Sean had to have known exactly what was going to happen when he picked up an African-American man to ride in the truck with two out-and-out racists. According to Defence Hawthorne, however, the prosecution had failed to give the jury a reasonable motive as to why Sean would have killed James. After 10 hours of deliberation, the jury reached a verdict. Has the jury reached its verdict? Can you pass it to the bailiff, please? Based on the jury's verdict, it is the judgment of this court that you, Sean Allen Berry, are guilty of the offense of capital murder. And based further on the jury's verdict on the punishment phase, it's the order of this court that you're hereby sentenced to life imprisonment. Sean was found guilty of capital murder. However, after just two hours of deliberation, the jury sentenced Sean to life in prison, sparing him the death penalty. He must serve 40 years before being considered for parole. James's family had anticipated that he would be treated the same as his co-defendants. Quote, if they shared equally in the crime, they should receive the same penalty, end quote, said James's sister, Clara Taylor. Outside of court, the media spoke to James's family. John Berry could have made a difference. He could have made a significant difference that night. And no matter how he come up these stories, by being polarized, you know, I don't believe in this kind of thing. But you sit there and let someone be dragged to death. It's no person in this world with any kind of humanity to sit there and not do something. It's just inhumane. But now they want mercy shown to them. And I say to people, if you want mercy, you first show yourself to be merciful. And no mercy was shown to James Jr. that night. Sean Berry is the worst of the bunch, and I still see it, because he was driving the car, and he didn't have to do him that way. He had to zigzag him across the road. It wasn't enough that they spray painted him. It wasn't enough that they beat him. It wasn't enough that they dragged him. He had to zigzag him across the road like that. It was inhuman. And Sean Berry had no heart, and he had no emotion to sit there to enjoy something like that. They have to be a sick, cruel person to enjoy somebody's suffering. You know, everybody wanted answers. But I see now we're not going to get the answers that we want. We're not going to get them. We're going to only get lies. I mean, I figured Barry would at least tell the truth. And he's telling us that he gave Bird a ride. If I'm with two of my friends, and they are my friends, I know whether they like black or white. So if they riding with me, why would I stop and pick up a white person when I know that they hate whites? Why would I do that? The resolution of the trials closed one chapter in the case, but opened another. The grieving process for James's family. Quote, there are several parts of grieving, and while we have some closure now, because we have made sure that justice is done, now we can start to grieve personally. 
We have not had time to do that at all, end quote, said James's sister, Melinda Washington. James's death had made a massive hole in the large, close-knit family. Grief is a personal thing. No one can ever know the inner pain that we feel, the sleepless night, the, uh, not even being able to look at James's picture, having to deal with the uh, talking to our children about uh, hatred and what hatred leads to. We're not a public family, and we had no desire to be thrust into that situation. And the issue here is this race, this racial killing here, not his more character or anything related to that. It's the way he died. And we knew he had problems, and we were the first one to say that he had problems, but we still love him the same. We treated him the same. We love each other as a big, fat, happy family. But and I think significant also um, was looking at uh, King and realizing that this young man has such deep-seated hate that even at this late death, date with death staring him in the face, he still has no remorse. And that kind of helped me to put him into perspective also. In the aftermath, James's son, Ross Bird, became a staunch anti-death penalty advocate and even hoped that the state would show clemency to his father's killers. I would like for them to think about it every day myself. You know, give them 40 years, I mean, give them life in prison without parole and let them think about it. Maybe they can change their ways. On the 21st of September 2011, Lawrence Brewer was led to the death chamber. He requested an extravagant last meal of two chicken fried steaks with gravy and onions, a triple bacon cheeseburger with fixings on the side, a cheese omelette with ground beef, tomatoes, onions, bell peppers and jalapenos, a bowl of fried okra, a pound of barbecued meat with a half loaf of white bread, three fajitas, a meat lover's pizza, a pint of bluebell vanilla ice cream, a slab of peanut butter fudge with crushed peanuts, and three root beers. When the food arrived, Lawrence said he wasn't hungry and refused to eat it. It was one final slap in the face of authority. The practice of a last meal had been in place since around the 1920s, and Lawrence's actions led to the Texas Department of Criminal Justice getting rid of the last meal in Texas. Nowadays, because of Lawrence Brewer, An inmate facing execution is just served the same meal as the other offenders in the prison. The day before his execution, Lawrence had told KHOU 11 News in Houston, quote, As far as any regrets, no, I have no regrets. No, I'd do it all over again, to tell you the truth, end quote. As he was strapped to the gurney, he finally showed some semblance of human emotion as a single tear rolled down his cheek. Two of James's sisters, LaVon Harris and Clarice Taylor, were in the execution witness room, along with his niece, Tiffany Taylor. Lawrence's parents, Helen and Lawrence, as well as his brother, John, were also witnesses to the execution. As they were ushered into the room, Lawrence looked up and smiled. When asked if he had any last words, he replied, quote, No, I have no final statement, end quote. He offered no apology, and he offered no remorse. The statement he had made the day beforehand was evidence enough that he had no remorse and no regrets. 
Lawrence was executed by lethal injection. The first dose was administered at 6.11pm and the final dose was administered at 6.16pm. He was dead within five minutes of the final dose. Outside, Clara described the execution as quick and sobering and contrasted it to her brother's death. Quote, For him, it was a peaceful death. End quote. John King's execution followed on the 24th of April 2019. The state of Texas has executed John William King. He was pronounced dead at 7.08 p.m. this evening. When asked if he had a final statement, Mr. King simply responded with the word no. He did, however, provide a written statement that reads as follows. Capital punishment. Them without the capital get the punishment. Period. He had repeatedly and unsuccessfully tried to appeal his case at both the state level and federal level. John declined any counselling from a chaplain and selected no witnesses. Levon, Clara and Tiffany were once again there to witness the execution. When asked if he had any final words, he uttered no. The first dose of pentobarbital was administered at 6.56pm and John was pronounced dead 12 minutes later. Today, we witnessed the peaceful and dignified execution of John King for the savage, brutal and inhumane murder of James on June 7, 1988, really a modern-day lynching. King, who was the ringleader of the three, had a deeply ingrained hatred of blacks as evidenced by his actions, his tattoos, and hate-filled rhetoric. He wanted to make a name for himself and his organization by killing a black man. James was chosen as his target. James was shown no mercy as he was dragged while still alive behind a pickup truck using a 25-foot logging chain. His body was slung from side to side like a sack of potatoes until he was decapitated. King showed no remorse then and showed no remorse tonight. His execution tonight was just punishment for his actions. The outcry of support from around the world indicated that James' death made a difference, not just to us, but to people around the world. We are very grateful to the judicial system for their full support. The local, state, and federal government all worked together to get a speedy arrest, trial, and conviction of all three perpetrators. Tonight, after almost 21 years on death row, the death sentence was finally carried out. James would have been 70 this year. He was deprived of the precious, precious, priceless memory of watching his three children grow up to be productive citizens. He has four grandchildren, and his older granddaughters will soon finish college. James' legacy continues to be one of peace and, and uh, nonviolence. As a result of his death, Laws have been changed to recognize hate crimes and to punish accordingly. But laws cannot change the heart of man. We look to God to bring about a permanent solution. But meanwhile, we encourage each one of everyone to reach out to those of another ethnic group and get to know them on a personal level. Because when we have open dialogue, 
It helps overcome racial prejudice. James's murder, as well as the homophobic murder of Matthew Shepard, which happened shortly afterwards, led to the Hate Crimes Prevention Act, which strengthened the ability of federal authorities to investigate and prosecute bias-motivated crimes. Congress followed, enacting the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act of 2009, which strengthened laws against crimes motivated by a person's race, colour, religion, sexual orientation, gender, disability, or national origin. Sean Berry still remains incarcerated for his role in the murder of James Byrd Jr. Since then, Sean has been in contact with James's family, and they have accepted an apology from him, showing that love and compassion truly outweighs hate. I'm glad that I had a chance to hear what happened or his version of what happened, mm-hmm. or just anything, because, like I said, I wasn't able to go in the courtroom back in 98. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really, I didn't know nothing but what I had read. Did any of that anger come back? Anger? Oh, no, this is a beautiful day. You see the sun in County, right? Yo! Yeah. Yeah. Right. see the sun in County, right? It's a yes, beautiful day. Oh, wow, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. What did you think of him, Ross? What did I think? Yeah. Well, he seemed he sincere. And, you know, looking right in his eyes and it's just, you know, situations happen. And, you know, won't nobody never know what really happened but them three men and God. So that's basically The murder of James Byrd Jr. was a modern-day lynching that sent shockwaves across the nation. It became a symbol of America's most heartless extreme, and was a chilling reminder, potentially lurking among the residents of any town, can be ignorant and racist people stuck in the past. It was sickening to realise that America was still contaminated by the same kind of violent racists that lynched thousands of African Americans in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In saying that, however, the aftermath of the murder was also a positive reminder of just how far the nation had come. For centuries, the criminal justice system saw black lives as so slight, so insignificant, that those who took the life of a person of colour in America rarely got convicted of the crime, let alone executed for it. Furthermore, Jasper's response to James's murder proudly showed the world that hate crimes are not acceptable, and they came through as a racially unified example for America. Well, guys, that is it for this episode of Morbidology. As always, thank you so much for listening. Morbidology Plus has a brand new episode up on Patreon and Himalaya Plus for my $5 supporters. So if you want more Morbidology, as well as ad-free, early release episodes and other goodies, please feel free to check it out. The links are in the description. The support really goes such a long way in helping Morbidology continue as a weekly podcast and I'm eternally grateful. I'd also like to ask that if you enjoy Morbidology, please consider giving me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening. It seriously helps out. A big thank you to everybody who has simply listened to an episode, commented on an episode, shared an episode. The support really is appreciated. 
Also, make sure you visit us at morbidology.com for more information about this episode and to read our true crime articles. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear a promo for the amazing true crime podcast, Missing Persons Podcast. Until next time, take care of yourselves, stay safe and have an amazing week. It's estimated that at any given time, there are 90,000 missing persons, and that's just in the United States. Imagine if your loved one went missing. Is there anything that you wouldn't do to try and find them? Would you cross oceans, spend your life savings, continually retrace your last known steps, just hoping something jumped out at you? This is Missing Persons, a brand new podcast, and I'm your host, Mike Morford. If you're a true crime podcast fan, you might recognize me from some of my other podcasts, including Criminology, Three Men in a Mystery, and The Murder of My Family. The most important part of hosting a podcast for me is advocating for the cases and the victims I discuss, as well as their families. I've been approached by so many people with a missing loved one asking me if I could help them in any way. And if it was my loved one that was missing, I'd want someone to help me too, so I couldn't say no. And this podcast, Missing Persons, is the result of me wanting to help. In every episode of Missing Persons, you'll hear about a person who disappeared and currently remains missing. In some cases, there are clues to follow and leads to check on. In other cases, it's as if the person just vanished off the face of the earth. And in each episode, you'll hear from someone who's searching for that missing person. And whether they've been looking for 30 days or 30 years, the pain of not knowing what happened to their loved one is real. And the search for answers, painful one. Missing Persons officially launches in March 2020. Will you join me and become part of the search for answers in these cases? If so, search for and subscribe to Missing Persons right now, wherever you listen to podcasts, so you don't miss an episode. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.